0: Hello everyone, welcome to Cave of the Cross Apologetics. I am Patrick, and I'm Tony, and we're uh, doing a special episode, which they're all special to me, but <laughs> to Tony especially. Uh, we are uh, have have gone through the past uh, about year or so, uh, walking through the book. Uh, what about evil? A defense of God's sovereign glory, and uh, we've we've done two episodes per chapter on the uh, for most of it. Some of them we had to do three. Some that we thought we weren't going to have much to talk about, we ended up doing three. And those that we thought, oh, this is a big chapter, we condensed into to one or two. So uh, we, we've we've had a joy of, of going through this book, um, and so we decided to bring back our very first guest, all the way back from episode 13, Scott Christensen, who is uh, joining us uh, today, and he's the associate Pas- pastor at Kernsville, uh, Kernville Bible Church and author of what About Free Will, which has more highlighting than I probably want to care to admit in this. <laughs> and then, of course, our our book uh, that we've uh, gone over in the past is uh, What About Evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory. And so uh, we decided to uh, bring back our first guest and our first returning guest, Pastor Scott Christensen. Pastor Christensen, welcome to the show again. Well, thanks for having me back. <laughs> it's my pleasure to be with you. We appreciate it. I, I, I did... I did more good highlighting in this book than, than drawing question marks in this and and having to have Tony explain explain it to me. But uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I, I um let's see tomorrow uh, in the show I I, I did a little um, uh, review and I said how much I appreciate this book because I've been trying to uh, in in my in my own walk uh, trying to apply my uh, theology uh, proper. So I've, I've been trying to apply. Not just the facts of who God is, and and uh, you know, God is love, and and, and all, all these all these ideas, and and have it more practically applied. And uh, what I've enjoyed about your book is the challenge to do that in a good way. In that, uh, uh, I I've, I think I've I've done interviews based on chapters of your book with people who are writing about God's story in the the uh, the the, the meta narrative and. Uh, uh, I think one of the best, uh, chapters of the incarnation I've, I've read has been in your book. And, uh, uh, one of the uh, good overviews of, 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 um, the history of philosophy chapter two. I mean, you, you, you did this book really, really well. And so, uh, we wanted to have you on and just say, we appreciated your story and, and, and how you set it up. Well, thanks. Thanks.
1: Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was a daunting task to, to, to cover all the different subject material that I did in the book. And uh, it felt very inadequate to the task, but but uh, hopefully it's helpful to people that have, have read it.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we, we kind of, I first wanted to say that uh, you've laid out this book very poorly because uh, you gave us the answer right off the start. I was saying you, you have to bury it in the middle of the book. You uh, force people to read. Yeah, yeah, you force people to read it. You can't. You can't give them the answer in the first first chapter and then build up from there. Uh, so, can can you explain um, uh, for 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 those who who um, who haven't been following our, our our series, what is a theodicy, and then what is uh, your idea from uh, the uh, best uh, scriptural and theological and a philosophical point is uh, what you call the greater uh, glory theodicy.
1: Yeah, a, a theodicy is, is really a way of trying to explain uh, why a good and uh, an all-good and all-powerful God would permit evil to exist in the world. And uh, it, so, so the idea is how do, how do we defend God against the charge that he is responsible for evil or even the charge that God doesn't even exist because there's evil in the world and presumably a good and powerful God would never permit evil to exist in the world. And so a a, a theodicy is an attempt to either defend God against the charge that he is evil or against the charge that he doesn't exist uh, because of evil or Uh, A theodicy could be something more robust in explaining why God, in fact, does uh, either permit or ordain evil in the world. So you really have two different categories in uh, historically, in theological and philosophical circles, a a defense um, when you're dealing with what's called the problem of evil, and this is what this book deals with. Um, is more uh, a more modest approach of just simply defending God against charges that either doesn't exist or that, that he does exist. He does allow evil, but somehow he is not culpable for evil. Uh, so it's fairly modest, apologetic type of uh, defense of, of God, uh, whereas a theodicy... Is really technically more of a, of a positive explanation. Yes, we know that God is not culpable for evil. He does exist. Yet, why has He permitted evil, or why has He ordained it to be part of His His uh, His plan for history? And so, so a, technically, a theodicy is a much more robust kind of response to the problem of evil, uh, seeking to give a, a, a a true explanation for why there is evil in the world. And, uh, but just to back up a little bit, the word theodicy itself is a term that basically combines the Greek word for God, which is theos, and the Greek word for justify, which is "dike." So you combine those two words together and the transliterated term is theodicy. And um, I I forget offhand who, who coined that term. Uh, but it was back in the sixteen hundreds I think seventeen uh, hundreds but anyway, um, yeah, that's at the odyssey
2: so uh, so uh, um, and you kind of uh, I mean, you deal with this a lot in your book. So what you've just outlined there is kind of two separate different approaches to how we try to deal with the issue of uh, you know evil, God, and evil. And uh, the defense approach, which, as you mentioned, is kind of a – uh, just a soft way apparently or, or, you know to deal right. with it. it has to do with usually when we think about that we're, we're thinking about the free will defense and yes. you kind of take issue with that particular approach in your book so could you kind of explain for us you know how you capture the free will defense and maybe a couple of issues that you that you have with that particular and I know we're kind of jumping off really quickly here <laughs> into
1: some <laughs> yeah so there- there's, there's really two basic ways that historically Christians have addressed the problem of evil, uh, either in terms of a defense or a theodicy. And the most common response is called the free will defense. And, uh, and then the other approach is generally known as the, the greater good defense. And, uh, of course, my theodicy, as you may guess, uh, is is a variation of the greater good uh, theodicy or defense, and, and I call my theodicy the greater glory theodicy for reasons I can explain later. But but anyway, the the, the free will defense is the most common defense, uh, and it is based on the assumption that a particular definition of free will is self apparent or true. And, uh, and so in philosophical and theological circles, this particular brand of free will is called libertarian free will. It's not the political philosophy, uh, but it's the idea that, that nothing decisively or sufficiently can determine what choices we make. And so we are autonomous as human beings in terms of our choices. Uh, They're not determined by, they're not sufficiently determined by anything, including God himself. And so in that sense, our choices are free and uh, they're indeterministic, some people will say. Uh, But furthermore, that means that you could have always chosen differently in the same set of circumstances. So you have same set of circumstances up to the time and point of choosing, and you could equally choose A or not A in the same set of circumstances at that same point, and nothing sufficiently determines whether you would choose A or not A. And so this is what free will theists define as free will. Uh, And so what that means for what's called the free will defense is that God, um, free will theists will say that God granted human beings this ability to have this kind of free will. And God doesn't interfere with that free will uh, because it's necessary in order to maintain what they believe to be uh, moral responsibility. Without free will, you, d- you cannot be morally responsible for your choices. They also would say that this kind of free will is necessary for loving relationships and furthermore, it, it guards God against being the author of evil. Uh, it guards God against being morally responsible for evil. So the opposite view of course would be that God in his sovereignty, uh, determines the whole course of history. And so the free will theist says, well, if you believe that, then that means God has to then be morally responsible, for evil in the world. So the free will defense basically says if free will is true and they believe it is, and if God does not interfere with the choices of human beings, and yet this is a valuable thing to have in order to preserve moral responsibility and to preserve, for example, loving relationships, they they would say, you know, we can't truly love God unless we are free to love God and vice versa. God must be free in his love toward us. And so there's there's this sort of free exchange where no strings tied, you know, to our choices. And that's the way they would argue. And that's a very valuable thing. However, it comes with a great risk.
2: Yeah, and, and almost and so God. I mean- yeah. Not to interrupt you here, but so are, no strings are tied, and yet it seems like, and I, this, I'm sure this is where you're going, it ties a rope around God,
1: right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yes, it, it, it makes God dependent on the choices of human beings. And so if God does not interfere with our choices, and he could, it's important to recognize that those who hold to this view, and typically it is connected with classical Arminianism, uh, but other free will theists would include people like open theists, if, if your hearers uh, know what I'm, you know, what that is, and, and another brand of theology called Molinism. There's some differences between those three basic brands of free will theism. But what, what is common to all of them is that they have this same definition of free will. And, and so the idea is that if God grants human beings this kind of free will, then God is taking a risk. That people will use their choices to make bad choices, and, and so these evil choices is what generates evil in the world, and it's just part of the risk that God has to take in order to create a world where people have free will.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and so supposedly that that position uh, guards God against the charge that He would be the author of evil, and, and essentially God Himself has no choice if He's going to create a world where, where loving, you know, valuable relationships occur, those relationships presumably have to be based on this free will. You know, I have to, in order to really express love, I have to have the equal ability to say, you know, I don't want to love you. I'd rather hate you. Uh, And if I don't have that ability to make the choice between love or hate, then, then I'm not really free and I'm not really responsible. I'm just a robot. I'm just a programmed computer, you know, and I have no free will. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the argument.
0: I, I think one of the, the best counter arguments, especially to that one, because I think that one's a very powerful um, argument against, uh, kind of against your position, but uh, the best counter example is who God is, which is in a Trinity, it, it, is, is Jesus, is, are, is the Holy Spirit, is the Father. Are they, are they allowed not to love each other? in 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 the triune nature and so if if they don't have the so-called freedom to to hate each other is that true love well we would say that in the existence of of uh the the of god before creation uh he he was in perfect unity he uh, one of the the positive qualities of uh trinity as opposed to uh strict monotheism like uh islam is that god kind of has to learn love in in that capacity and and uh, by having a, a, a triune nature with three persons uh, that there is no learning love. He is loving towards the, the, the other members of the Trinity. And so th- th- uh, does God have the ability to not love in, in that uh, in that uh, uh, relationship? And I think that's uh, one of the powerful uh, counterexamples examples uh, to your book on, on that, uh, on that point.
1: Yeah, exactly. God, God himself does not have this kind of freedom. And so, this sort of freedom is necessary for loving relationships. Well, God Himself doesn't have it, because it's not even possible for God to express hate, right? That would be that would be uh, you know that would be the capacity for sin existing within God, and there is no capacity for sin within God. And, and so, um, you know, the love that exists among the members of the Trinity, uh, there can be no other possibility. Uh, There is no possibility of hatred among members of the Trinity. There is only the possibility of perfect, you know, unhindered love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so, um, so God doesn't have this kind of free will. And if God doesn't have that kind of free will, and it's not necessary for God to be morally responsible in his relationships with each other or with us, then why is it necessary for us to have that? Yeah. And so that, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, one of the arguments against free will. Right.
0: And, and, and to say too, uh, what I appreciate about your last book and, uh, and it followed into this book, which I'm always uh, happy to see is uh, the, the other side uh, laid out and, uh, Laid out using kind of the, their definitions, their terms, uh, but then interacting with it in in a, a, a positive light. In fact, uh, m- many of the, um, the 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 five uh, theodicies that that you list, I'm sorry, the the, the, the six here, um, uh, you talk about positives that they have, and and uh, you you kind of uh, incorporate into into your um, into your um, uh, answer for the theodicy.
2: Yeah, I, I thought that was, uh, well, well, that was one of the things that we uh, observed really uh, quickly in the book. It seemed like you were really fair with, with the other side in terms of making sure that you clearly explain where they were coming from, why they held the, the, the positions that they held. And so that, yeah, that was, and so you could really understand where the folks who you definitely disagree with but, you know, where their good points were and, and that sort of thing. So that we, we really appreciated that when we were going through this book. That was really helpful.
1: Yeah. yeah ra- rarely in these debates do you find someone embracing something so painfully false <laughs> that that it's just, you know, that there's nothing of value to learn from. That. I think there's so many valuable points that free will theists make. Uh, and, and it's important to understand where some of those strong points are. Um, you know, there, you know, there is a sense in which we have to have some concept of freedom, of will uh, because we recognize that we make decisions willfully, right? Whether they be sinful decisions or whether they be godly decisions, depending on, on the situation and the person uh, in terms of whether or not they're regenerate or unregenerate as, 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 you know, as Christians or non-Christians and what, what stands behind those choices, you know, for example, uh, free will theists will accuse Calvinists, um, you know, of a brand of, of choosing of free will, if you want to call it that, that involves coercion. Well, that'd be a great, that'd be a serious charge if that were true. And, uh, you know, if, if God determining our choices was a matter of coercion, I think the free will theists would be correct in saying that our freedom of choice and our moral responsibility has been rendered mute. Uh, if, if coercion were involved, uh, we, we know from, from experience that if somebody is, forced to do something against their will with a gun pointed to their head, you know, to do something evil, you know, that they're not morally responsible for that. Uh, And So part of the charge of, of free will theists towards Calvinists is that your brand of free will involves coercion, you know, because you could do no other. Right. And so they assume that means coercion. The pro- so the, the the task of the Calvinists is say, no that's not coercion. So it's important to listen to both sides of the argument because they do make good points. But do they misrepresent each other? And so you know you always have to make, do your best effort to represent the opposition the way that they themselves would argue, and then and then look for the, the weaknesses in their arguments.
2: Yeah. So so, Patrick has already pointed out as and I think you do it in your book with this issue of uh god and love and in the trinity is there any what, what is there um what do you think is there any other um arguments against this free will defense that you think are really you know causes it not to to work i guess for uh for a good the uh theodicy
1: well yeah there's there's a number of of reasons why i think the libertarian brand of free will is, um, is not coherent. Um, from a scriptural standpoint, uh, I believe it's not coherent because the Bible makes it very clear that God is uh, sovereign over all of history and uh, that he has determined everything that takes place in the course of history. And I seek through several chapters to demonstrate that. And, and I believe that he is sovereign over both good and evil, and that evil, in fact, serves God's purposes. And that if something evil were to occur in, in a world that God might plan or ordain that did not serve some purpose that God had, some good or greater purpose, uh, then if that evil had not occurred, that he certainly would not have ordained it to happen. And we know of cases in which God has said, you know, certain amount of evil uh, will be allowed in His His plan, and then beyond that, no. Uh, a good example of that would be the Great Flood in, in 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 Genesis. You know, the 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 world had become so evil that God had determined that. This is not going to continue this way. And so he designed you know, Noah and the flood to wipe out the world and to start over. And we have many examples of that kind of thing. Nonetheless, the point is, is that the Bible is very clear about God's sovereignty over both good and evil. What the Bible is less clear about is some fine-tuned definition of free will. And so I, I think it's important to not overstate the case uh, and, and, and I bring this out in my previous book, What About Free Will?, that the Bible is, does not give us some clear definition of free will, uh, but it certainly does not embrace the libertarian view of free will. I believe it's far more supportive of what is called the compatibilist view of free will, that our free choices are compatible with God's meticulous sovereignty. And uh, so I think that would be an argument against free will and probably the most powerful argument in my mind. Another very powerful argument against free will is the doctrine of foreknowledge. You know, both Arminians and Calvinists agree that God knows every future event uh, in history exhaustively, and therefore it's not possible for something that God does not foreknow to happen contrary to what he already knows. And yet that's part of the definition of free will from Arminians and other free will theists is that you, you know, at the moment of choosing, you could always go in opposite directions. And if that's the case, you could never know beforehand what those choices might be. Right. Right. There goes so the prophecy. Huge, <laughs> yeah, it's a huge problem for, for Arminians and other free will theists. And they have turned themselves, I believe they've turned themselves in all kinds of knots and circles trying to answer that question and, and have done so in a very unsatisfactory way. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that, that God knows that you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and drink, you know, a cup of Folgers coffee at 9.03 a.m. Is it possible for you at 9.03 a.m. to fool God and drink a glass of lemonade instead? Um, if that's the case, then you have, you have eviscerated God's omniscience. And that is one of the attributes of God that
0: we cannot, um, we cannot deny. Mm. And so yes, yeah, the of foreknowledge is a very big problem. Mm. I, I think on, on the opposite end of the spectrum, it's, it still doesn't, uh, let the, the Molinist or the, 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 uh, the um, the provisionist, uh, kind of get away from the, that, that nomenclature of author of evil because god still actualizes uh, a universe in which uh you know and it's always it's always uh, the the rape of a child or it's always something very very strong uh, emotional that uh, that the, they put forward um it, it it's always actualized in a world where x evil happens and so god is is uh, authoring a world in which those things he he knows to happen so it it, it almost uh it, it maybe takes a step backwards and 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 looks at the point of uh creation uh but uh from from there uh you know god can't do otherwise because then he would be interfering and so it, yeah. it's, it seems to be a uh 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 you know it, the, the the point against calvinism uh it, it seems to s- still uh work against them for their point of view too
1: yeah, you can't escape you can't escape these problems. You know, for 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 example for the open theists, you know, the open theists I think has the most consistent view of free will because basically they deny that God has any foreknowledge of future events. Now God can know with great accuracy what future events might be but he can't know with absolute certainty what those events might be. Mm -hmm. Um, They would say that God has exhaustive pre-knowledge, you know, of everything in the past up to the present. And he can use that knowledge to predict the future. And he's really good at predicting the future. (laughs) Uh, And that's how they treat prophecy. Um, But, but he doesn't know exhaustively what the future holds. He can't know with any certainty uh, you know, with 100% absolute certainty what any future event holds. Nonetheless, you know, let's let's consider the case of a serial rapist or a serial murder. You know, the open theist God may not know that this guy's going to com- commit murder, but after the second or third murder, you know, he knows what this guy's probably going to do. Why doesn't he stop him at that point? Mm-hmm. You know, God does, you know, the open theist agrees that God has the sovereign power to intervene. Now, of course, the same is true of the Arminian. If the Arminian knows, you know, that the Arminian God knows that this serial rapist is going to continue to rape these, you know, 30 odd women or whatever, why doesn't he stop, intervene and stop? So they end up with the same type of problems that they accuse the Calvinists of having because of the foreknowledge issue. And, um, and the Molinist just ties himself in circles with the same, same thing. So the, the bottom line is, is that you have to have a much more robust understanding of God's relationship to evil than any of those viewpoints provide us. And, and even many Calvinists shy away from the kind of theodicy that I present. In in my book, because it seems absolutely audacious to say that God has some kind of greater good, um, that would come out of evil. And so many Calvinists are very reluctant to go down that path. Uh, but the fact is, is that that's the only other viable position that you would have to hold to if you reject these other positions.
2: Yeah. So, so just before we get to your, uh, Specifics of your position. Let's talk about one other, probably popular, uh, position. Leibniz's ha- Leibniz has a theodicy that sounds similar to the type of thing that you're doing. Although, as you point out in the book, it's it's very different, right? So, could you, you know, he has a uh, a best of all possible worlds type of thing. And it's a theodicy to help, you know, explain or defend what God is doing. Could So could you just share that with us a bit? And then maybe that'll lead us into, as you talk about how that's different than your position, that'll lead us into more specifics of what your position is.
1: Yeah, I, I'm very favorable to Lee Vince's, uh position, but he he fails to answer some important questions uh, about his position. So basically, Leibniz's position, he was a uh, a philosopher in the the 1700s, I think, early 1700s, uh, that put forth this theodicy called the best of all possible worlds. And the idea is that God is a perfect being. And this this comes from classical theism, which uh, most Orthodox Christians would adhere to. Um, not in the in the fullest sense, Arminians don't always embrace everything that classical theism teaches. Uh, nonetheless, Calvinists do, and uh, and so the idea is that a perfect God would only create a world that is perfect, uh, and so. That presents, obviously, a problem at face value, because why would anyone think that evil in a world is a perfect world? So Leibniz says, well, it's because God has some greater good, so really the best of all possible worlds is a version of what is called the greater good type of theodicy or defense. And and there's a number that fall within that category, and I try to demonstrate that in the book. But anyway, uh, so he would say that God must have some good purpose in evil. The problem is, is that Leibniz never tells us what that might be or what those greater goods might actually be just that we have to agree that they would be furthermore. We have to agree that God would make a world that is perfect and there is no better world than the one that he created, uh, the problem with that is that how can we know for sure that this is the best possible world that God could have created? Um, I think the best that we can say, and this is what I attempt to say in my book is that I think we could say that there is no greater world that God could have made, but there could have been equally other worlds that are not worse than the one that he has created. And I think that has less philosophical problems, Um, you know, and again, that's, you know, we're speculating based on inferences that we make from the character of God and from Scripture. So I believe that the best of all possible worlds theodicy that Leibniz developed does have some great value to it it's just that he doesn't answer a lot of those questions. And and I think he makes a mistake of saying that this is the only possible world God could have created. um, That is the best world. I I think it's presumptuous for us to say that God was locked into only making this type of world uh, with the exact, you know, balance of good and evil and everything that happens to me. That's, that's restricting God too much. Nonetheless, I do argue in my book that there is no greater world than the one God has created in which certain things occur, and namely those things have to do with the incarnation, the death and resurrection, the ascension, the second coming, and the eternal state that is all centered around Jesus Christ. And so there is no greater world that we can conceive of in which there would be no incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, and final uh, victorious establishment of Christ's eternal kingdom than in such the world that God has created. And so, any any good, supremely good world that God could have conceived of would have to include the incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming of Christ to establish his kingdom forever. And that's part of my argument in in the book.